Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here, you have to be resilient, and you have to be persistent. And at some point, you have to believe that you have an idea that's worth pursuing. You have to be careful when you to become too much of a believer in an idea because things often, even good ideas get overturned as science progresses and you have to be able to recognize it. Hello, LookUp listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the LookUp podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein, and today I have part one of a really interesting conversation with Professor Jack Feldman, Dr. Jack Feldman, uh, a professor of neuroscience at the University of California, Los Angeles, also known as UCLA. A little bit of um, Professor Feldman. He revolutionized our understanding the neural control of breathing. He's renowned for his groundbreaking discovery and naming of the pre-Botzinger complex, demonstrating its essential role in generating respiratory rhythm in fetal, neonatal, and adult mammals. This discovery is the current foundation for the paradigm for generation of breathing pattern. The role of the pre-Butzinger complex is presented in textbooks and routinely taught to graduate and medical students. Jack's breakthrough was made possible by his lab's development of a novel neonatal rodent in vitro slice preparation, still unique for studying meaningful behavior. Had a really great conversation with Jack. I felt um, it was right up my alley, as you know. Uh, I'm also a breathwork instructor, instructor in addition to uh, being a yoga teacher and uh, cryptocurrency venture investor. And I've been fascinated with the breath. I've read many uh, texts from the Eastern school of thought on kind of what the breath is and why we breathe and how important it is to take time to pay attention to our breathing. And so for me to have this opportunity to speak to uh, Jack, Dr. Feldman was really special because I was able to kind of chat with him, one, about why we breathe from a Western scientific standpoint, all of his discoveries. Uh, we also talked about the process of science uh, and also being an academic scientist and different academic journals and getting published and how that can either accelerate or slow the results of groundbreaking research. We talked about this in the context of COVID-19 in this episode. And in part two of this conversation, uh, I was able to ask some questions of Jack around some of the uh, yogic teachings around breathing and whether there were any scientific evidence of them being uh, factual potentially or some experiments that might be run or his general intuition based on years of studying the breath um, and the breath brain connection if any of these might be somewhat true so really fascinating conversation super grateful to jack and also to my friend julia for introducing me to jack thank you so much julia and glad to be back with with you all with another episode this week and i hope you enjoy Jack, thank you so much for joining me on the Look Up podcast. I feel like this is going to be uh, an interesting episode, uh, given your background and my listeners know how uh, intrigued I am by the breath and um, the power of breath work to kind of impact our lives positively. Maybe we could start with a deep breath together, if you're cool with that. <sighs> And I know you talk about sighing in, in some of your work as well. 
And this is an opportunity, I think, to like, A, learn more about the science, the actual science, you know, Western science of breath. Um, and B, maybe, you know, I, I have some questions for you based on my experience with yoga that maybe you can let me know whether or not science has confirmed or denied these um, uh, statements and traditions that are passed on, at least for the time being, uh, until maybe science does prove them or, or not or disproves them. Uh, but I think, you know, a great place to start would be, you know, one, uh, a little bit of your background. I'm going to share that in the opening of the episode uh, as well. But it's always great to hear it from you directly. Uh, so I, uh, thanks very much for giving me the opportunity to uh, talk to you on this podcast and uh, talk to your listeners. Uh, I am a professor of neuroscience at uh, UCLA. Um, my background is a PhD in physics, and I became interested in the brain when I was a graduate student and then pursued it as a postdoc in Paris and New York and then uh, moved on to uh, other academic institutions coming to UCLA about uh, over 30 years ago. So I'm pretty much become from uh, transformed from a Brooklynite to a Los Angelino. And um, when I left Brooklyn, I wasn't necessarily proud when people asked me where I was from, but that uh, has changed quite a bit. So I'm proud to say I'm from Brooklyn. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and my day-to-day my -day life uh, academically is trying to figure out how the brain works. And I have a deep and broad interest in trying to understand that. But by training as a physicist, sort of forced me down a path of trying to find things about the brain that potentially we could understand. And we can go into the story, but uh, the basic uh, outline is that in looking for problems, I felt that understanding how the brain generated breathing was going to be a slam dunk. And I was going to finish it in a couple of years and move on to things that <laughs> higher function. And here I am still working on it because it turns out to be much more complex than uh, certainly I imagine, but I think most of my fellow neuroscientists imagine. It's really endlessly fascinating. What's the most surprising discovery uh, about the brain-breath connection uh, that you made outside of it being a, a much more challenging problem to, to solve, let's say, than you had expected? Well, the, the first substantive challenge was to try and figure out if there were particular places in the brain that were devoted to breathing. In other words, whether it was sort of distributed throughout large parts of the brain or focused in small parts. And when I was a graduate student, I read a lot of the literature that placed it in a few different places in a region called the brainstem, which is basically between the spinal cord and the brain is this region which was basically at the back of your neck, uh, which is called the brainstem. And a lot of vital body functions are located there. But no one really had a clear picture of which particular region was involved. And as I started to do experiments, I realized that the literature was just simply wrong. And we embarked upon a series of crazy experiments to try and see if we could localize a site for generating breathing. And I wouldn't say much to my surprise, but certainly to my satisfaction, we identified a relatively small spot in the brainstem that seemed to be critical for the generation of the breathing rhythm. And it had not been previously studied, so we had the privilege or the hubris to give it a name, and we named it the Prebutzinger complex. And uh, that really surprised a lot of my colleagues. In fact, it was so surprising that for 10 years, most of them rejected it. It sort of went through a, a sort of standard way that new truths get identified in science, is that the large majority of scientists who are vested in that problem reject it because they have too much uh, to, or they perceive they have too much to lose if something novel replaces their prior ideas. And it took us almost 10 years of trying to convince people and slowly but surely by doing new experiments. And then we did probably a definitive experiment that uh, really established that. So that was probably the first thing that was really surprising. 
And then I would say the second thing that was really surprising was we thought that would there would be basically one dedicated site that was generating this rhythm. Just like your car has one engine, we thought there would be a single engine for breathing. And we discovered uh, about 15 years later that, in fact, there appears to be a second engine. And one engine is devoted to generating the inspiratory rhythm, and the other is involved in generating the expiratory rhythm. But normally they're so tightly entwined to each other that you would think they all came from one place. It's sort of like day and night. You know, you think that all com that all comes from one place, and in fact it does because it comes from the simple fact the Earth rotates. But it's more complicated than that. It looks like because of evolution, we went from a breathing pattern in reptiles and amphibians that was generated predominantly to produce expiratory airflow to an evolution where we started generating inspiratory airflow. And that came from a different place. And these two places were very tightly interlocked. And so I would say that those were the uh, probably the most surprising things. And more recently, what's been a surprise is that breathing rhythms are not just involved in generating airflow, but are seen throughout the brain. And lots of things oscillate with the respiratory cycle. So your pupils get bigger and smaller with each breath. They get bigger and then they get smaller during expiration. And that's just ongoing. Um, your fear reaction, that is whether you find something fearful, uh, oscillates with the respiratory cycle. And this list goes on and on. And when you look in the brain, you find that on top of the activity that's underlying everything that we do, there's a background oscillation that is tied to the breathing rhythm and that this seems to play a role in how we uh, modify and organize our emotional state and our cognitive function. And this is where it ties into the effects we see of uh, breathing practice on emotion and cognition that you see in yoga and mindfulness and so on. Hmm. And I, I want to definitely get to that to that last surprise. I guess before just like rewinding to the first one, I mean, what the scientists that required 10 years of convincing um, that brain was kind of that breath was generated in this pre Butzinger complex of the um, the brainstem, you know, what what was their closely held belief of of how breath was generated? Well, they thought it was coming from another site. And we, in order to try and identify the region that was involved, we started to do a very novel experimental approach. So prior to uh, these experiments, almost all the studies trying to understand breathing were done in intact mammals. And they were typically anesthetized and uh, probes, which we call electrodes, would be inserted into the brain and we would try and pick up activity that was related to breathing. And that be working in intact mammals, like right now we do all our work in mice, uh, is very challenging because not only do you have to be concerned about uh, the state of the nervous system, but you have to maintain uh, that the animal is in good physiological state and is being done in an ethical way. Um, what we found was that that great progress had been made in neuroscience and understanding issues related to learning and memory by using a novel technique where a region of the brain called the hippocampus could be removed from the brain of an animal that would be sacrificed and then could be sliced into thin slices, almost like when you go to the deli and you get the uh, ham sliced thin. And Yum. when you put these thin slices in a dish, you can then have uh, incredible access to the individual neurons and the circuits that they form in these particular slices. And it turned out that if you cut the slice just right, you got a circuit involving several neurons that was... Um, 
discovered to be critical in many aspects of learning and memory. And going from these observations in these tissue slices, uh, one was able to then design experiments in whole animals, even in humans with observational studies using imaging that confirmed these observations and extended them to show that they were, they were real uh, foundational studies. So what we did is we decided we would try to make slices of the brain stem. And we found that when we made slices of the brain stem, there was only one slice in through a particular, that included a particular region that continued to generate a breathing rhythm. And we studied that and we came up with some particular properties of this region. And we then went back and looked in intact animals to see whether or not this region was in fact critical in intact animals. But to get back to your original question, because our foundational studies were done in these slices, and this was a novel approach to studying it, a lot of our colleagues rejected it out of hand because they said, oh, this is an artifact or an epiphenomenon of the fact you're not looking at the whole brain, that breathing is a process that requires the whole brain, and we couldn't look at it in small parts. And we argued that it was more like trying to understand how the engine of a car works. It's hard to study how the engine of the car works if it's going 60 miles an hour down the highway. You can't really actually get into it. Whereas if you take the engine out of the car and put it on a table, there's a lot of things you can do. You can even get the engine running and observe a lot of things. You can put measuring devices in. And so in a sense, that's what we do when we took these slices. It's the equivalent to putting the engine on the table. And we're able to discover a lot of things about it that we then could go look back Just like with an engine, you can then go back, look at an intact car and find out if these things that you found were relevant to how an intact car performed. But I took a lot of this was such a novel technique for most of my colleagues that had a lot of trouble accepting it. And they said some things that were, I don't think, totally rational at the time. These slices that we made had to be made from newborn Uh, rodents. And because they were from newborn rodents, some of our colleagues said, well, maybe that doesn't apply or it doesn't apply to adult animals. And we counted by saying we all have to breathe throughout the entire lifespan. So why should it be different? And then there was the issue that it was rodents. And then people would say, well, rodents don't breathe the same as humans do. Mm. So I think that that encapsulates what some of the problems were, but this it becomes very, um, it's not a dispassionate argument. It becomes very emotional, which is something that sort of surprised me and certainly surprised a lot of people outside of science. So they think of scientists as being rather dispassionate and always following the data, whereas there's a lot of uh, human interaction that colors how we do science. Yeah, it's super interesting. I You had a funny... Uh a funny joke in, in one of your, uh, in one of your presentations about science and the four stages of truth. Do you remember, uh, do you remember the stages that you, you listed off? I forget who, uh, whose example it was. In fact, I do. And I, because I suspected that you might ask about it, I actually have it up on my computer screen. Um, cause I have trouble really remembering them precisely. So, Uh, The renowned philosopher Schopenhauer in the late part of the 18th century said there were three stages of truth. Um, First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it is accepted as being self-evident. So this is what we went through. First, our ideas were ridiculed. Then people, um, when the ridicule stopped being effective, They said the experiments were stupid. And then finally, it was accepted. And not only was it accepted, but it was almost like, well, it was obvious. In fact, (laughs) the the 60s transformed this somewhat to four stages of truth. Uh, One, this is worthless nonsense. Two, this is interesting, but a perverse point of view. Three, this is true, but quite unimportant. 
and four was I always said so. And <laughs> we actually see this. I occasionally see a colleague who doesn't refer back to our original studies and criticize for original studies, but cites their own work, which was based on our original study, in referring to the discovery of the prebutzinger complex. So that's just the way that this, the science goes. And there's one other point I'd like to add, and um, this is from the famous uh, physicist Max Planck, who said, new scientific truth usually becomes accepted, not because opponents become convinced, but because opponents die, and because the rising generation is familiar with the new truth at the outset. And uh, to be candid, the younger neuroscientists who are growing up seeing this, the pre-Butzinger complex in textbooks and in lectures, basically assume it's always been there, and um, which is to me very gratifying. On the other hand, when I meet them for the first time, they are sort of surprised I'm alive um, because <laughs> it's new. Stuff that goes back even 40 years strikes them how to be made by people who would be dead by now. And it's a pleasure to inform them that I'm still not only alive, but very active in the lab. How, how old were you when you, you and your team made this discovery? Yeah. I wasn't a youngster. I think I was in my late 30s, early 40s. So I'd, okay. I'd done a lot of work and I became unsatisfied and I felt we weren't going anywhere. And, but one of, the, one of the challenges in science is that the technology progresses. And sometimes the technology allows you to answer questions that are very important you can answer before. The problem with that is that we're under a lot of pressure as scientists to keep producing. And when a new technique comes along, you have to learn it. Sometimes you have to spend a lot of money to get the equipment necessary to do that. And that detracts from your productivity. And so in my, my my modus operandi is about every five years or so, we reinvent ourselves. We say, okay, what's the best way to attack these problems? Not what, what have we done that we can still use, but what's the best way to attack these problems? And so when I was in my mid to late 30s, the notion that we could use slices to study the brain became apparent to me. And I took a lot of time to learn how to do these experiments. I went to uh, see colleagues in Boston. I did a year-long year sabbatical at the Karolinska Institute just to learn how to do experiments in dishes. Um, and uh, this, was, this affected my productivity, and uh, it was a bit of a risk because there was no guarantee that it would work. And so it, was a, it came in an opportune time for me, and ultimately it led to this uh, discovery in which in the last 40 years, a substantial amount of the work in trying to understand how breathing works is built on this foundation. So I think it was the right, clearly it was the right thing to do. But uh, it's something I could not have done in my 20s because we didn't have the technology to do it. I mean, we would sit around late at night or because we do these uh, all night experiments uh, sometimes under the influence, and we sort of fantasize about <laughs> Under the influence of what? <laughs> oh, I'm not sure readers speculate, but if they do math, they could figure out what the epic was and what, what might be uh, the influence, what might influence us. <laughs> we had, you know, no holds barred, um, crazy, you know, sort of sophomoric ideas. You know, what if we could record from every neuron in the brain would be an example. And it turns out we're getting closer and closer to doing that. And um, so these kind of experiments were not, um, if I can use the word of unthought of, we had thought of them, but we just thought they were fantasy, you know, fantasies of the ilk of what, what happens if I win $100 million in the lottery. And um, But in our case, the lottery paid off. Hmm. That's so cool. Um, it's so cool how that happened. I mean, I think, you know, especially if I had been a scientist studying intact animals, you know, it's, it's hard to wrap my head still even having kind of read through and like heard you speak about these experiments. It's hard for me to wrap around my head how a piece of uh, a brainstem 
with neurons in it, you know, how you then tie that activity back towards causation of breathing. Like it's, that's, that's something that I, I'm still struggling with. Because it's not all that mysterious. In 1986, okay, cool. in Japan, there was a tradition of looking at the intact spinal cord, which would be excised from sacrificed newborn rats. And the advantage of that is one could then look at the way the neurons were interconnected to process signals coming in from muscle and going out to muscle. So you could actually, in a, uh, in a, from a neonatal rodent, take out the spinal cord with some muscles attached and then stimulate some of the signal uh, detecting um, fibers and then see the muscle contract and try and figure out what was going inside. So it was like an excised piece of the nervous system. And in 1986, a Japanese colleague took out the brainstem and spinal cord from a neonatal rat. But what he did is he kept the rib cage intact. So it's, it's almost Frankenstein-like to think about it because you have in a dish the brainstem and spinal cord with all the nerves connecting it to the rib cage. But the rest of the brain is gone. The animal is not uh, uh, feeling any pain because those parts of the animal are gone. It's just the brainstem and spinal cord. And in these animals, you could, or these preparations, you could see the spinal, the rib cage periodically contract and go back and forth, just like it does in an intact animal when they breathe. So this was clearly that this structure Brainstem and spinal cord contain all of the structures necessary to produce those movements. We decided to take it a step further. And we based it on experiments done in the late part of the 18th century. So this was sort of the post-Renaissance uh, neuroscience as science became sort of rediscovered. One of the driving questions was where is the noe vital, the node of life? Not surprisingly, going back thousands of years, breathing was thought of being life. You know, animators like animation and whatnot have the root in, in breathe. So breathing and life were together. If you saw a, a body that was not breathing, it was dead. And so the thought was that whatever was critical for life was in this node that generated breathing rhythm. And in the late part of the 18th century, um, some French neuroscientists did an experiment where they took rabbits and they exposed their brain stems and took a blunt spatula, just like a chisel, and cut the what we call the neuraxis. So for example, when they would disconnect the brainstem from the rest of the brain that is like the brain, the cerebellum, the, you know, all the parts we think of as our brain, they disconnected that. The animals still continued to breathe. So it said that those parts of the brain were not essential for breathing rhythm. Then they started to use this um, chisel to sort of lop away parts of the brainstem. And what they found is that they could lop away some parts of the brainstem, but as they got further and further down to the spinal cord, they reached the point where the breathing stopped. So that was evidence at the time that the, there was something critical for breathing that involved this part of the brainstem and maybe contained the noe vital. So if you take that experiment and the experiment of, of the isolated brainstem and spinal cord driving a breathing rhythm, we then said, okay, what if we just took the brainstem and spinal cord without having the muscles intact and we could record from the nerves that would normally innovate the muscle so we could see whether or not they have the activity that would be equivalent to driving these breathing muscles. And when we did that, we saw that they had a breathing rhythm. So he said, okay. Then what we did is we took the brainstem and spinal cord. So you can imagine the brainstem at the top, the spinal cord at the bottom. And starting at the mm -hmm. top, 
we had a special instrument that allowed us to cut very, very thin slices from the brainstem. And what we found is we could cut a few very thin slices and nothing happened to the breathing rhythm. But once we cut another slice, the breathing rhythm broke down and another slice, it would go away. These slices are like the order of a hundredth of an inch. They're, they're very, uh, uh, no, let me, uh, yeah, about a hundredth of an inch, maybe a little bit more. So they're very thin slices. It turns out that we did the experiment in the opposite direction. We put the spinal cord at the top, we put the brainstem at the bottom, and we started cutting from the spinal cord back to the brainstem. And we found a similar effect, that is we could cut a long way down and we still saw a breathing rhythm until we got to some point in the brainstem where the breathing rhythm disappeared. So we, we speculated. So here we're way out in the limb. We speculated that somewhere in that region that we cut was something critical for breathing. So we then did, we then took a slice that included that region. So in other words, we made a cut above that region and a cut below that region. And we had something that was um, 500 microns, which is about a 50th of an inch thick that had the brainstem. And it turns out that leaving the brainstem are nerves that go to various muscles in the face and the tongue. And at the level we made the cut, there was the nerve called the hypoglossal nerve, which innervates the tongue. Now, it turns out that the tongue has respiratory activity. You don't really notice it, but basically it helps open up the airways when you inhale and it relaxes back to slightly reduce the size of the airways when you expire. And that has a real function because what it does, it slows the airflow during expiration, keeping more air in your lungs, making breathing a bit more efficient. But the advantage it had for this experiment is we could record from the hypoglossal nerve, which still happened to be in the slice, that told us we still had respiratory activity. So we had respiratory activity in this slice. So now we narrowed down from the whole brain to the brainstem and the spinal cord to some narrow, small region in the slice. And we went, uh, put our electrodes in various places in the slice and found this region that was the origin of the rhythm in the slice. And it had not been named. No one had studied it before. And for reasons, if you want to, we can discuss. We named it the pre-Botzinger complex. And so it, it, it wasn't that we just said, okay, let's slice the brain. We had convergence of various experiments that suggested this would work. However, we took the risk. We have a, a, um, a mantra in my lab. You can't do anything interesting if you're afraid of failing. And I'm willing to bet that that's something that, that people in your realm also follow. That is, you know, you make investments, but some of the best investments are in things that might ultimately fail, but they could be spectacular. And so we found that, you know, there are experiments you need to do that are incremental. You sort of know what the results are. And there, there are experiments where you think maybe has a 10% chance of working, but if they work, the results will be spectacular. And this fell into that sort of venture capital category of uh, being a <laughs> I love the analogy. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so fascinating. Um, I, I just uh, both the the actual kind of science that you're doing, the process that you're going through, the risk that you're taking, and then even like, as you describe the the politics of academia, and you know, having to having to kind of produce and the risk that you're taking in these new techniques by not producing. Um, it's it's all really, uh, really, really compelling. I guess one one follow up to that. So so you finished that experiment, and it wasn't until ten years later that it was widely accepted. Was there was there a turning point that you can specifically point to um, a follow up work that was done, or was it just as you said the old guard kind of died out, or you just continued to 
to hit them with more evidence? I, I think it's several things. The first thing is we were incredibly fortunate that we were able to get. So we published this first as an abstract at a meeting I spoke at in Stockholm, and that got buried. And we eventually, not eventually, we shortly wrote a paper. And the there are basically three marquee journals in biological science and probably two marquee journals in science in general. The two marquee journals in science in general are science and nature. And in biology, probably the third one is cell. Mm. So the these, the, particularly nature and science are like, um, the old news magazines like Time and Newsweek used to be. That is, you get it and you, you, know, you just put your feet up on your desk and you read it to see if there's anything interesting. So scientists still do this so that they probably don't get the hard copy anymore. They look at it online. But most of us read it to see like what may be hot. And so science and nature don't always hit the mark, but they, they uh, quite often publish papers that are real landmark papers. So most scientists covet the opportunity to publish in these journals. We sent the paper to, um, well, I won't, I won't tell you what nature said, but we sent it to science. <laughs> um, well, I, maybe I should tell you, although this will probably get me in trouble with the nature editors. The nature editor said, well, we're not interested because breathing is not a sufficient general interest. <laughs> Only a few centuries prior studying it because it's the, uh, the, the, the definition of life, but it's not of sufficient interest. <laughs> because it's how the brain generates a sine wave and we're working on cognition and learning and memory and those things are exciting and breathing is boring. Um, well, I wouldn't say, didn't say boring, you just said not of general interest. So we sent it to science, and I have to credit the editor at Science, saw something that might be interesting. It went out for review, and the, 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 to me, the thing that was interesting is in science, you don't just publish something like you might do on your blog. Um, which there's nothing wrong with that. But in science, we have what's called peer review. The paper goes mm -hmm. to a journal. The editor sends it to uh, scientists who should have expertise in judging the paper, and they make a judgment. The judgment could be binary, publish, or trinary. Publish, not publish, or it needs work. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's a process where even if 90% of the people might think the paper is great, if they just happen to choose someone who doesn't like it for whatever reason, the paper might get published. So you're somewhat dependent on who the reviewers are, who the reviewers are that get chosen. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily that they're pals, but that they're uh, willing to read the paper, make a judgment without preconception about whether or not it fits into their notions. And mm -hmm. uh, we were fortunate because I think if it were sent to any of our close colleagues, they would have just rejected it out of hand. Instead, it was sent to, I mean, we, it's still an anonymous. You don't know who the reviewers are. But it was sent to, some, to three distinguished colleagues who did not work directly on breathing. So they didn't have a vested interest in whether there was a, uh, a paradigm that needed to be protected. And they gave a very thorough, thoughtful review of it, uh, but basically liked it and said, you need to make a few changes and think about things. And we did. The paper got published in Science. And moreover, the splash occurred not only because it was in Science, but was in an issue of science that they distributed for free at the Society for Neuroscience meeting, which is this mm. big meeting attended by 25,000 neuroscientists. So they all got to see it, not when they got home, but at the meeting. So I ran into a lot of people and said, oh, we saw your paper. And so there's a lot of buzz that was created by it. But as it percolated out to our colleagues, there was a... Uh, a, uh, a um, a lot of objection to it that eventually percolated. And we had challenges getting our grants funded. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, we struggled a bit, but I'm 
resilient. I, I would say that here you have to be resilient and you have to be persistent. And at some point, you have to believe that you have an idea that's worth pursuing. You have to be careful when you to become too much of a believer in an idea because things often, even good ideas get overturned as science progresses, and you have to be able to recognize it. So we tried not to paint ourselves into a corner. And the, the key experiment was one that was, we were a little bit scared to do because the key experiment could have disproved our ideas. The experiment was, could we eliminate neurons in Prebutska complex? What would happen to breathing? We had a clear prediction. The animal's breathing should get all messed up, pathological, and maybe even stop. That was a clear prediction. If we lesion Prebutzinger and nothing happened, we'd have to go back to the drawing board and our ideas have to be completely rethought. That's a very hard thing to face because we had put in six to eight years into trying to test this idea. And this was the basically the killer experiment. We did the experiment. And here again, the technology allowed us to do it. We had a colleague who invented a technique that could basically eliminate a particular subpopulation of neurons. And... We had published a paper showing that a particular subpopulation of neurons was highly prevalent in the prebutsula complex. And here again, serendipity worked. This paper, the second paper, was also published in Science. And in the same issue of Science was a paper using this new technique to eliminate mm-hmm. cells with exactly the same molecule in them. So we contacted uh, this guy and we got a, a, the, the right um, uh, compound that we can inject the prebutsal complex. And it would take about five days to eliminate this subpopulation of neurons. So you would, we took intact rats, we anesthetized them, we injected them with in, just in the prebutsal complex. This is a region a few hundreds of an inch in diameter. So it required very precise targeting. We injected it on both sides and we waited because it take, took several days. And at about after four or five days, the animals, the rats breathing got significantly disturbed. And when it got to the point where it was seriously disturbed, we sacrificed the animals. But this was... Very repet, we could repeat this over and over again. And it was, it convinced almost everyone that this was an essential region for generating breathing rhythm. Um, mm. Subsequent to that, we did an experiment with using another technique, and this is as new techniques get invented, which allowed us, instead of eliminating the neurons, just allowed us to turn them off like a switch. When they turn them off, the animal would stop breathing. And would stop breathing, we'd have to mechanically ventilate them, artificially breathe for them while this compound. So now this is this is all in intact animals, these last two experiments. So Exactly. Intact awake animals. Wow. So it's not a matter that anesthesia is depressed, because anesthesia could depress breathing. We maybe we'll discuss it. We know opioids depress breathing, and they you know killed seventy thousand people last year in the United States alone. So there's a concern that when you use anesthetics, you're uh, confounding any results. You might look at where the breathing rhythm is originating. But we ultimately did the experiments in awake behaving animals, and they would stop breathing. They would be very perplexed, mm. and then we would mechanically ventilate them. And after about an hour, the drug would dissipate, and they would be perfectly normal again. Wow, incredible. What, um, I, I, I have a question unrelated to the specific experiments, but kind of going back to the, the publishing in journals, because I'm fascinated by this moment in time, which is a moment in time where, you know, the broad consensus um, is being challenged and faith in institutions, all institutions in the West um, is waning. Uh, and 
you know, that includes our academic institutions. So as, you know, clearly a, a scientist, um, someone that's done decades of work in the space um, and clearly has, you know, faith, maybe that's not the right word, but, um, you know, belief in, in, in the scientific method um, and has used it to prove and, and establish really great new discoveries and truths or existing truths that we now know. Um, you know, what is your kind of sentiment around the um, academic kind of, you know, community or the way, the process that through which this happens? Like the what you described almost sounds like, you know, like a Copernican almost, you know, situation where the, you know, at that time the establishment was religious, but, you know, where the, the established um, interests could squash an idea. Like what if one of these, you know, colleagues of yours that focused on breath had re received that paper, we wouldn't know this discovery um, were, were true. So I guess, has that shaken your, your, um, your trust and faith in, in, in kind of ac academia and in the scientific community? And I guess, what would you fix? How would you fix it? If, if it's broken, it's obviously not broken, but challenge. I would not want to be king, but let me make a few comments. If science didn't publish a paper, we would have published it somewhere else, and it would have taken longer for the information to percolate. When you publish in these high-profile journals, it goes out quickly. And uh, the, that, those papers were not picked up, but we published papers more recently in Nature and Science, which went viral, which I guess is a new phenomenon. I mean, it wasn't uh, in the 90s. And, uh, you know, <laughs> papers around the world publish them and everyone finds out about them. And this is part of how, how our work got ultimately communicated to you because we did some work on sighing that went viral and it was, you know, it went not only to the major newspapers and PR wrote about it, but what I am most pr proud of is The Onion wrote about it. And so <laughs> my, my kids, who are not kids anymore, my sons suddenly thought, hey, dad is okay. You know, we got something. And the Onion wrote about this paper. And in fact, uh, Cosmopolitan had a thing about this work. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm the only one amongst my colleagues who can, can make that claim. But getting back to your question, there, is, there are truths in the world. If I let... Um, I'm holding something in my hand above my tabletop. If I let it go, it's going to drop. No matter what you say, you can't create an alternative truth that that's not going to drop. So I, as a scientist, you believe that there are things that are demonstrable and are true that you can that are foundational. When we get into areas where things are a bit more murky, uh, you have uh, the opportunity to sort of try and figure out uh, clarity. And the fact that science goes through this is well known. It's uh, probably the, my favorite, one of my favorite books about this is The Nature of Scientific, Scientific Revolution by Thomas Kuhn, who talks about science reaches a level where ideas in a field become iconic, and they're called paradigms, and then... Uh, there's a revolution where someone proposes a new idea. So there was the Ptolemaic view of the uh, solar system, and Copernicus comes along with a new, new idea. So the Ptolemaic view was the paradigm, that the Earth was the center of the universe, and Copernicus comes along and says, no, the sun is the center of our, our uh, solar system. And it took a while, but that's the way science works. It's self-correcting. And mm -hmm. uh, people often confuse that with disputes among scientists about what's correct. Because when we're studying something that's new, uh, very often there are different approaches and it takes a while to figure that out. Now that said, there are areas in which the preponderance of evidence is so great that you can accept it as something that you need to um, base important decisions on. So things like climate change, uh, that the preponderance of evidence is so overwhelming that a rational person cannot reject it. Um, the earth is round. Now we have people who say the earth is flat, but I think I would find, I would 
guess it would be highly unlikely that any of your listeners would say the earth is flat. And if they do, please comment on this so Mark can respond to that or I can respond to that. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's certain things that you, you, I guess we always have people who will be contrarians, but I don't think anyone believes the earth is flat. And I think most rational people who are not caught up in the political process or have an economic interest in maintaining the status quo, which is another driving force in how we view scientific observations, will say climate change is real and we have to do something about it. I now have four grandsons and a fifth on the way, and I worry about the world they are going to inherit. I think the world I'm in is going to be fine. I'll be long gone before the consequences become unbearable but I am worried about uh, what it's going to be like for them. All right. Hello, LookUp listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of LookUp every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly Newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to marc at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in. And I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have. <laughs>